You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. At the heart of this case is Drew, who testified at trial that he knows with every fiber of his being that he is a boy. Drew Adams, a transgender high school student, sued his Florida school district in 2017 because he wasn't allowed to use the boys' bathroom. His attorney, Tara Borelli, argued that the school's mandate that Adams use the girls' bathroom or a gender-neutral bathroom violated the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection, as well as his rights under Title IX, the law barring sex discrimination by educational institutions. The line that we're challenging here is not the one that separates boys and girls under either claim. That's not the line being challenged. The line being challenged is the one that the school board has drawn around every transgender student and only transgender students and has said, not you, you shall not pass. We will padlock the restroom doors to you. You're not fit to share that space with your peers and your mere presence in that space is unacceptable. But the full 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, in a sharply divided opinion, ruled that the school district's policy of separating school bathrooms based on biological sex is constitutional because it advances a governmental objective of protecting students' privacy. Joining me is Noah Ben-Asher, a professor at the Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University. Noah, what's your reaction to this divided 7-4 to decision? I am angry. This boy, I mean, if you read this case, it is just heartbreaking because this is a case about a particular boy who comes out as a boy right before puberty and wants to use the bathroom. He's not bothering anyone. His friends accept him. His teachers accept him. They use the correct gender pronouns. But for some reason, the school decides that he cannot use the bathroom. He and maybe four other students out of 2,000 cannot use the bathroom of their gender identity because someone, some anonymous person might be offended. That's how wrong this decision is in all respects. Did the majority opinion rely heavily on privacy concerns? So the decision, legally, it's talking about the Equal Protection Clause and specifically about the idea of having different bathrooms for boys and for girls. And for that purpose, the court relies heavily on a legitimate state interest of privacy. So in terms of the logic of the court, the court is talking about privacy. Now, the court said that the bathroom policy didn't violate the law because it's based on biological sex, not gender identity. Quote, a policy can lawfully classify on the basis of biological sex, 
without unlawfully discriminating on the basis of transgender status. Will you explain that difference? I would say if we were to summarize, the main problem with this decision is that particular definition of biological sex, which it relies on and is just incorrect in terms of the medical science and expertise that is out there. The way that the school policy defines biological sex is basically about chromosomal sex and about the shape of the genitals as a doctor at birth assigned it. That's the school's definition. Now, when we go to the actual evidence that the district court had in front of it, it talks to a lot of experts who testified that as of today, that is simply not the medical definition of sex, which today includes many factors, some of which are chromosomal sex, shape of genitals at birth, or internal organs. But most importantly, gender identity has been left out of the definition of biological sex as used by the county. And that is what this whole case really turns on. So the question is really what the definition of biological sex is? The question is even the term itself, biological sex, as is used. It's no longer used that way by most prevalent medical experts. So what the district did here is it took a definition of biological sex that is very narrow and also simply incorrect in how we understand predictors of sex today. Because just to be clear, when a baby is born, nobody gives them chromosomal tests. What happens at the hospital, this is what happened with this plaintiff as well, is a doctor looks at the genitals and says, oh, this is a girl or this is a boy. In many cases, this is not going to be the development. And even if it is, there are other components that are just not part of that initial definition. So the correct way to talk about it today, according to the medical experts, that has been followed by many courts, is to talk about sex assigned at birth. So you see there's a difference between talking about biological sex versus talking about sex assigned at birth. This was a ruling down ideological lines, seven to four, with judges appointed by Republican presidents in the majority and judges appointed by Democratic presidents in the minority. Why is this an ideological dividing line? This issue is, as I've written about and many others have noted, is one of the hottest topics right now in the divide that we sometimes call culture wars. And obviously, one of them is abortion, what happened in the Dobbs decision. But transgender identities and rights have been an issue in the last at least five years, really since Obergefell, since the right to same-sex marriage. And so it is no surprise at all that the divide here in the 11th Circuit is along uh, ideological lines. And I just want to go back to the medical understanding of sex, of biological sex. And I'm, I'm going to quote here from the dissenting opinion, quoting the medical experts testifying. So this ideological divide that you and I are just talking about it's really about what sex means. What do we mean when we say sex? So medical experts today, and I'm quoting, recognize that a person's sex is comprised of a number of components, including chromosomal sex, gonadal sex, fetal hormonal sex, internal morphologic sex, external morphologic sex, hypothalamic sex, pubertal hormonal sex, neurological sex, and gender identity and role. That's the current medical definition of sex. The Republican nominees and many conservatives just do not agree with this definition of sex. So they come up with policies that narrow it substantially such that 
a transgender boy such as this plaintiff is excluded from using the boys' bathroom. This 11th Circuit decision creates a split with the 4th and 7th Circuits, which both rule that transgender students can use bathrooms that match their gender identities. So the 4th Circuit, in a famous case that almost was heard by the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court ended up denying a hearing, went the opposite direction and definitely held that gender identity, and again, this is the key, is gender identity part of our understanding of the human being? And if so, how important it is. And the Fourth Circuit went with the plaintiff there, another transgender boy, and said that his gender identity is critical and the school must allow access to the bathroom that follows his gender identity. So that happened at the Fourth Circuit. We also have a decision like that in the Seventh Circuit, where a similar challenge on equal protection and Title IX grounds. And I want to say that these decisions all turn on the definition of what we mean by sex and how we're going to cabin the idea of of sex, of biological sex versus gender identity. Do we include gender identity in the definition of sex or do we exclude it and say there is biological sex and then there is gender identity? So might the Supreme Court intervene to resolve that split? It's hard to predict here. It is a question of whether this court has an appetite for this particular case. Given its record from the last sitting, it seems that this court is willing to go all in and make this very politically oriented decision. So I wouldn't be surprised if the court takes this circuit split and goes with the 11th circuit. But I just wanted to emphasize that in the Title IX domain, this particular case in the 11th circuit is an outlier and does not reflect where district courts are in most of the country, and and circuit courts are. Is the Supreme Court's ruling in 2020 in the Bostock case that Title IX protects LGBT workers, is that persuasive here? Although that was when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the court, and it's a very different court now. Bostock was decided on Title VII grounds, which is an employment context and not in the context. So it's it's a different statutory grounding. And Justice Gorsuch, writing the decision for the majority, specifically never talks about gender identity. So he rules in favor of the transgender plaintiff without talking about gender identity, but relying, again, holding back on the idea of biological sex. And so Bostock did not help the plaintiff make his claim regarding Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause. It's going to be hard to predict based on Bostock, especially the equal protection case. Regarding Title IX, I would say that, you know, we could lead to a similar kind of textual reading of what the Congress meant in 1972 regarding Title IX, what sex means. But even there, you know, Justice Gorsuch ended up in favor of the transgender plaintiff. So I would say that we cannot predict how the Supreme Court will decide this case. In light of this decision, one Florida school district, Pasco County, has already changed its rules to require students to use restrooms based on their sex assigned at birth. So can we expect some far-ranging consequences of this decision? Absolutely. Definitely from now on in Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, school boards, school districts can just decide to use this incorrect category of biological sex that doesn't rely on any medical science and use it to deny access to transgender students to bathrooms. And that, according to this particular decision, which is why it's so harmful, is not in violation of the Equal Protection Clause and not in violation 
of Title IX. So these three states will now be able to do that. Will they all do that in all districts? Probably not. So even in the 11th Circuit, some school districts have other policies that are more inclusive towards transgender students. The divide right now, I don't think, is necessarily by state, but we have states like in Texas and Florida where we have other legislation that is very anti-trans, specifically around preventing care for trans youth in Texas. So, of course, the more conservative-leaning states have other policies in place to discriminate against transgender students. There's so much to talk about here. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Well, I just want to clarify that the main things that I think went wrong in this decision are two, right? The first is that it really turns on this kind of public debate that is happening now in the courts and in Congress in a different level around what transgender means and if transgender is real, right? If gender identity is real or not. So in many ways, this decision, when we read the dissent, when we read the majority, is really that debate about what gender means. Does gender mean what we are at birth? Or does gender mean other things, so sex and gender? So I feel like we, we must understand that this is what's at stake. And as you said earlier, it is an ideological question, right? We can turn to science and we can have medical experts testify, and they have been. And they have been testifying in favor of the transgender plaintiff. So this is, this is number one in the debate. And another important thing that I really want to clarify is that turning this decision, as the majority did, into a debate about whether sex-segregated bathrooms are legitimate or not is not the question. So the court averts the question of excluding transgender students in favor of a different question that wasn't raised by the plaintiff, which is, is it okay to have boys' rooms and girls' rooms, right? And so those two misconceptions, I think, lead to this decision that seems highly ideological because it is. That's Noah Ben Asher, a professor at the Elizabeth Haupt School of Law at Pace University. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Republican attorneys general jointly challenging the Biden administration have found their preferred venue. Nine of the 45 multi-state Republican lawsuits against the Biden administration have been heard in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Louisiana, which stretches from the Arkansas state line down to the Gulf of Mexico. And within that district, they found an ideal judge in a rural farming parish of less than 50,000 people, best known for its proximity to the Duck Dynasty reality TV show family. 
Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. Madison, we've seen that Texas has been a preferred venue for Republican attorney generals to sue in. But tell us what this B-Law analysis found. So we looked at a data set by a Marquette University political science professor, Paul Millett, and we dove into this data and found that the Western District of Louisiana has kind of emerged as a preferred venue for Republican attorneys general when they're filing a lawsuit together against the Biden administration. There's a district judge in the Western District of Louisiana, and Republican attorneys general have been trying to get him to hear their suits. So within those the lawsuits that we found that are going to the Western District of Louisiana, there is one judge who's heard more of those cases than any other judge in the district and any other judge in the country, and that's Judge Terry Doty. He's based in Monroe. He has heard five of these cases so far, and Republicans seem to kind of find him by accident, but then return to him time and time again after he gave them a favorable ruling. And, you know, he is definitely become frequent target for, for this type of litigation. He's given nationwide injunctions in some pretty big cases. Tell us about some of the bigger cases that he's been involved in. So the first case was a case involving um, oil and gas leasing on federal lands. And that one was in the summer of 2021. That one was initially filed in Lake Charles Division, where uh, he only gets 10% of the cases. So it was a little bit by chance that they got him. But he gave the attorney general that filed that lawsuit a favorable ruling. And then they, they returned to him again for a case fighting Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandates for healthcare workers and Head Start teachers. And they filed in the Monroe Division, where he's gotten anywhere between 80% of the cases to 100% of the cases several times after that. How do the district courts decide who gets what case? How do they divvy them up? Is it the same for all or different? So it's different. And uh, courts have a, a lot of ability to choose how they assign cases. Sometimes it's more transparent than others. In these courts, that happens to be pretty transparent. They post their case assignment orders online. Oftentimes, you know, they'll, they'll break it down by division or judge, and there'll be percentages assigned to those judges in those divisions, which are based on geography. And that's kind of what determines what cases go to which judges. So in, in a small division, Monroe, for example, um, is one of these small divisions. There might only be two judges hearing the majority of the cases, and the percentages could, could vary between you know, 90% for one judge and 10% for another judge, or 80% for one judge and 20% for another judge. So people filing lawsuits in those divisions can have a, a degree of certainty about who the judge they're going to get is. One of the important things in getting a, a judge in Louisiana or Texas is that it goes to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one of the most, if not the most, conservative circuits in the country. Right. And that, that definitely adds to the appeal of, um, pardon my pun, <laughs> the appeal of any court in the, um, in the Fifth Circuit. Um, if you file at in a district court that is in the Fifth Circuit, that would be appealed 
to the the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit, as you said, is um, is is known as one of the most conservative circuit courts in in the country. Um, and that, combined with the fact that there is a conservative majority on the Supreme Court right now, gives Republicans um, the best shot that they've had in in a long time at at, at getting a favorable ruling all, all the way up the ladder. Have any of Judge Doty's decisions gone to the Fifth Circuit and then been reviewed by the Supreme Court? In the highest profile of those cases, which was the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers, uh, Doty's ruling was limited by the Fifth Circuit. Um, he enjoined, he had an injunction, they limited it to the 14 states that filed the litigation. Um, but then they tossed it out, or it was tossed out in light of the Supreme Court's decision to allow the mandate to take effect in a different case. And he doesn't think that he's political. No, he he said that he, he's making determinations about you know what he thinks the law is. He's got to follow what he thinks the law is, and he he told you know Lydia that he. He doesn't believe that he's political and he doesn't rule a particular way because he was appointed by a, a certain president. And he's not the only judge, is he, that Republican attorneys general go to? As you mentioned, there is already kind of this focus on Texas. And um, Professor Stephen Vladek has uh, looked at some of the litigation in Texas you know, by the Texas AG, by the Texas governor. Uh, and when litigation is filed in Texas, um, they can similarly look for these divisions that uh, have a majority of Republican appointees or have a very small number of judges where they can be pretty sure about who they're going to get. So Texas is already a an area where this this happens and is, is well known that, that this happens in. I just want to point out, there's nothing unethical in forum shopping. So forum shopping is something that all litigants can do and and in a lot of scenarios do uh, as, as a part of, uh, you know, good lawyering. Um, this was pointed out by a former judge on the Fifth Circuit, um, Greg Costa, who, who recently left to return to private practice. And, and he noted that, you know, forum shopping is, is something that, um, that lawyers do to make sure that they're, they're going to have the best chance uh, at, you know, getting their, um, getting a favorable ruling. But, um, you know, critics of, of forum shopping and, and judge shopping also um, point out that this is a way that just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. And, uh, you know, maybe in, in instances where you can really pinpoint who your judge is going to be, there needs to be a change. And the only change that could really happen there would be a systematic change to uh, prevent people from targeting a, a judge in, in a particular area. So Judge Costa has advocated for changes, and he's made a suggestion. Right. There is a, a proposal that, that he has uh, talked about in the past, which is to uh, have three judge panels hear cases that are seeking nationwide injunctions instead of a single judge. There could still be forum shopping under uh, that system. You could still 
you know, choose a court in the Fifth Circuit to, to have it appealed to the Fifth Circuit then, but it would prevent judge shopping and it would, it would limit forum shopping some, at least this is what, what Casa says, you know, instead of being able to target one judge, there's less certainty if two other judges that you can't choose are added to that panel. Democratic AGs also do forum shopping. Where do they do their forum shopping? So when Democratic attorneys general forum shop, they target the Northern District of California and the Southern District of New York. Those are venues that saw quite a few lawsuits during the Trump administration. And Democrats sued the Trump administration a lot. There were more multi-state suits against the Trump administration than there were during the Obama administration. Thanks so much, Madison. That's Madison Alder of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.